Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality they make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Hey listeners, it's Mishi. This week, we released our 50th wartime diary. Next week is Yom HaZikaron and Yom HaTzmaut. And as a way of marking this milestone, and these dates, Yochai Meital and I will have a series of onstage conversations in New York and Cleveland. We'll discuss the process of creating wartime diaries, talk about some of the challenges we've encountered, the dilemmas we've had, the insights we've gained, so if you want to hear what covering the evolving story of this war has been like for us, we'd love to see you at one of our events. All the details are on our site, israelstory.org. And meanwhile, wishing us all calm and peaceful days ahead. Hello. Thank you for calling the Trip but Sheva Jerusalem Hotel. Calling the Crown Plaza Haifa Hotel. For calling Orient Hotel. For calling the Rashid Hotel. For calling the Norman Tel Aviv. For reservations, please press 1. Please hold. Please wait. Please wait a moment. Hi, I was wondering if you had any rooms available for tonight? This specific hotel is closed there until further notice. Unfortunately, the Norman is currently closed due to the ongoing coronavirus situation. There are many hotels that did not open. Wishing you all the best until we see you again. That was our managing producer, Zev Levi, trying unsuccessfully to book a hotel room. Now, to say that hotels suffer during corona is obviously a massive understatement. In March, Israel closed its borders. And since then, according to the Central Bureau of Statistics, international tourism has dropped by 99%. Yeah, 99%. And few people know this as well as Jason Gardner. Born and raised in Ellenville, New York, in the Catskills, upstate. Uh, I made Aliyah uh, 26 years ago. Uh, been in Jerusalem ever since. Uh, been married now. Uh, oh my God, my wife would kill me now, but I think it's 24 years. 24 years married uh, with four kids. Live here in the heart of the uh, Baca German colony area in Jerusalem. Jason's a sales and marketing manager for Isotel, a chain of 19 high-end hotels throughout Israel. In the midst of building another eight hotels as we speak. The Yisrotel hotels include Bereshit in Mitzperamon, the Carmel Forest Spa near Haifa, uh, Royal Beach Tel Aviv, Royal Beach Eilat, Mitzpeh Yamim near Tzfat, the Orient in Jerusalem, our Kramim Hotel, which is a lovely spa uh, which sits on a vineyard right outside of Jerusalem, between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, and on and on and on. All told, the chain has about 5,000 hotel rooms. 
Usually they're pretty full. But needless to say, that changed dramatically at the start of the pandemic. People saw the writing on the wall, and most of them just started canceling like crazy, dropping like flies. Overnight, basically, all those 5,000 rooms emptied out. All of a sudden, we just had a complete freeze and complete halt. It went from, uh, you know, you could drive a Ferrari from zero to 106 seconds or something like that. So it went down from 100 to zero in, in absolutely no time at all. Most hotels need to have an occupancy of 30 to 40 percent just to break even. So one after the other, all 19 East Hotel hotels closed their doors. So it was basically within the first two weeks of March, uh, we went to a complete shutdown. Jason's office is in the Orient Hotel, in the German colony in Jerusalem. And after it closed, he'd go visit every now and then. And the first time I walked in, I, I had tears in my eyes. It was, it was very, very difficult. It was very depressing. Seeing it completely dead, completely shut, it was absolutely heartbreaking. And it really hit the soul. But amid this industry-wide gloom, there was a glimmer of hope. One category of hotels that managed not only to stay open, but to stay full. Corona Hotels. Hey, I'm Ishi Harman, and this is Israel Story. We've reached the fifth stop on our Alone Together journey, in which we're exploring life in Israel in times of Corona. And today, enjoy your stay. We've got two stories for you about two very different kinds of corona hotels. One for people who already had corona, the other for Israelis returning from abroad and quarantining so as to make sure they didn't have corona. Our first story comes from our friends at Rough Translation. Rough Translation is a wonderful NPR podcast and radio show that follows familiar conversations in unfamiliar territories. They travel the world bringing us fascinating tales that offer new perspectives on questions we're all thinking about. One of my favorite recent Rough Translation episodes was called The Global Legacy of George Floyd. It included five short accounts from the Netherlands, New Zealand, Syria, Brazil, and Kenya, all about the ways in which racism, oppression, and policing are being discussed around the world. You know, we live in a time in which it seems harder and harder to step out of our own little bubble. But Rough Translation's host, Gregory Warner, and NPR's Jerusalem bureau chief, Daniel Estrin, are about to introduce us to an unlikely community in Jerusalem where it was almost impossible not to mix and mingle. Now, you've heard Daniel on our show many times before. He's brought us the tale of a mysterious hitman in Elat, trying to contend with the city's crow infestation. He's told us about the successful campaign to end wildflower picking in Israel. He's shared the beautiful and ultimately devastating tale of a love affair that had a checkpoint in the middle. And just last season, he uncovered the story of the doctor who anesthetized Adolf Eichmann in Buenos Aires. Back in April, Daniel was, of course, mainly reporting about the corona outbreak in Israel. There was a lot of uncertainty, and also a lot of downtime, just waiting around at home to see what would happen. Then, one day, Daniel was... Kind of sitting on the couch with nothing to do, and my partner and I are in, in our apartment, and we're not going out like 100 meters from our home, and we're watching Instagram together. They scrolled through popular memes, home Olympics, people getting all dressed up to go out to the living room, things like that. They'd laugh, and then... Like, every once in a while... I'll be like, whoa, check this out. And one of those whoa, check this out posts was a video. You see about a dozen people in a carpeted hotel lobby doing this funny Macarena move together? It's Zumba. But it wasn't one of those mass Zumba classes on Zoom that were all the rage in the early days of the pandemic. Instead, it was a real-life class with real people standing right next to each other, breathing on each other. Sweating together, even. And this could only happen because they were all residents of an unusual establishment. A hotel for people who had all already contracted the virus. In the video, it's mainly young Israelis. You see a guy wearing what looks like a t-shirt he got in the army. 
and there's a girl in a hijab. And that is what caught my eye because Israeli society is pretty segregated. Arabs and Jews tend to live in separate cities and go to separate schools. I mean, yes, you will see them both in the market, but seeing them together in an exercise class, by choice, having fun, well, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> and there are so many other videos like this coming out of Hotel Corona, with people doing things that I can't do with other people. Like sunbathe, they can give each other high fives and hugs and dance and party together. Rooftop yoga. Karaoke. It's like watching reality TV. Daniel, you should know, usually hates reality TV. But Hotel Corona is like this alternate reality. Like the reality TV show I actually do want to watch right now. And in many ways, these posts that Daniel and many others started to follow really were like reality TV. The premise? Hundreds of people, Jews, Muslims, religious, secular, young, old, all recovering from COVID-19 and now forced to live together in a hotel until they were no longer contagious. And this absurd reality was playing out in real life all over the country. Here are Daniel Estrin and Gregory Warner with the story of one such, Hotel Corona. So I'm Noam and I am Corona patient number 3555 which is a very symbolic number here in the Middle East because when you have three fives, it's good luck. Noam Schuster Eliassi is an Israeli comedian. Before the coronavirus, she'd just gotten her big break, a booking for her one-woman show in Washington, D.C., and gigs all over the place. And then her shows were canceled. She flew back to Israel and passed out at home. It felt like her lungs were on fire. After a short stint in the hospital, she was dropped off by ambulance at the Dan Hotel in Jerusalem, a nine-story hotel with tennis courts and a spa, now leased to the government to house recovering COVID-19 patients. When I got to the hotel, the doors open, and that's it. Immediately the doors shut, and there is, there is no going out for me anymore until I get released, until I have two negatives. Two negative tests. Then she's allowed to leave. You feel like uh, you're like an alien. And then I walked in, and I was like, hey, is anyone here? Up two flights, she finds the reception desk, encased in plexiglass. I just saw this very nice religious guy with a yarmulke asking how I was and letting me know that they're here for us. So my name is Baruch Spitzer. I'm the reception manager at the Dan Jerusalem Hotel. Of the hotel's nearly 400 employees, Baruch is one of only about four dozen who agreed to keep working here when the patients arrived. For me, it was simple. I knew from the beginning that I'm going to stay. There is a say in the, the hotel industry that uh, it's, like, it's also like a virus. If it catches you, it's very hard to go out. Besides, he worried if he wasn't here, the army might send soldiers to do it. It would have been like, uh, like a military camp to run the hotel as, as a hotel and not give uh, the guests a feeling that they are in jail, you have to have hoteliers. Yeah, what is different about it? What's the hospitality part that you bring to it? We welcome the guests. We speak to them to get them out from, from the shock that they're in when they're coming into the hotel. And then there is a small interview when they're coming in. What's your name? How old are you? From where you're coming from? Uh, he asked me in the check-in, do I keep Shabbat? How religious I am? Of course, I know according to names, if there are Jews or non-Jews. The reason for these questions is that Baruch has to play matchmaker. He assigns people roommates for their time in the hotel. Oh, I wish he had a man for me. I think you could choose well for me. <laughs> the room assignments were really, really good. Assigning rooms in a place like Israel, it's not easy. For example, one person was the ultra-Orthodox, and we've matched him with an Orthodox. Those two could not stop fighting over the TV. As in, one wanted to watch it, the other said it was forbidden to turn it on. So Baruch separated them and made a note to ask about that in the entrance interview. And then another day, 
another complaint. Someone came to me, listen, I, I don't want to be staying with this, this guy. I told him, listen, why? You're an Arab and he's an Arab. You're 20 years old and he's 20 years old. So what's wrong? No, but I'm coming from the north and he's coming from the south. Baruch says his job is to make every patient, every guest, as comfortable as possible in a time of uncertainty. And he says that means being with your own kind, people who pray like you pray, people who think like you think. We are trying to do the best match we can. And uh, I can say that's 98% success. <laughs> really? Yep. In my experience, it's easier for them if it's as similar as possible. My name is Aisha Bushab. I'm 19 years old, and I'm from Rat City in the Negev. Aisha is Muslim and Bedouin, and Baruch didn't need to assign her a roommate. She arrived at the hotel with her 21-year-old brother. They're both janitors at a hospital. That's where they got the virus. It was strange a little bit. Like, we we eating in our room. We didn't go outside. We didn't check up with the people. She says it just felt weird not to be interacting with the other guests. I love to know people, like listening to them, sharing with them uh, uh, stories. And so when she hears Baruch announcing dinner over the PA system, Aisha goes down, gets her individually wrapped supper tray, and looks around for a place to sit. The religion Jewish was together. She sees the religious Jews are sitting with other religious Jews. The secular are with secular. And the Arab was together. Everybody's sticking with their own kind. Aisha grew up in a Bedouin city in the desert, speaking a Bedouin dialect of Arabic. She knows about sticking with your own kind. But when she was seven years old, her mom brought home an American couple to stay with them. They were academics, studying Bedouin polygamy. Aisha's dad has two wives. Aisha's mom saw these guests as an opportunity. So they starting to learn us English, and we starting to learn them Arabic. The couple was writing about you. Yeah, and they was living with us for two years. Her mom would tell her, be curious about people, ask questions, it'll help you. And so now, holding her tray of food in Hotel Corona, Aisha scans the room for the friendliest face. And she makes eye contact with an older religious Jewish couple, Amram and Gina. So they were nice. They was laughing all the time. So I chose them. It was so easy to talk to them. How did you get the virus, one would say. Well, how did you? And by the end of the meal, they are singing and laughing together. Aisha felt this moment was so special, she recorded it on her phone, which began happening a lot at Hotel Corona. People would have a nice chat over lunch and immediately pull out their phone to just capture this moment. And these were the kind of videos that Daniel Estrin started watching. The first hotel guest I started following on Instagram was Noam, the comedian. I remember she did this comedy show in the hotel lobby. There's no stage, there's no mic, and she's kind of shouting so everyone can hear her. My body was weak, my mental state was weak. I was like, Noam, you're not going to be very good and very funny right now. And it's fine. I'm not going to lie, it's not the funniest stuff. It's like, my number is 3,555. I have three times, Hamsa, 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 you know, five, five, five. So I'm going to bring you my good luck with my uh, number. Hopefully you'll get out of here. And they're all like, no, we don't want to get out of here. What are you talking about? We're Wednesday. And I'm like, so who here is really sick? And who here caught it on purpose licking a bench outside in order to get in the hotel for free? <laughs> you losers. Seriously, that's the feeling. You don't know who's sick and who's trying to get a free ride in the hotel, I swear. So you know how people wonder if it's too soon for Corona jokes? In this hotel, was not too soon. And then I said that maybe we can start a Tinder that is just for corona patients. And the first date can be going to visit grandma and grandpa, no fear. <laughs> so of course I did also part of the show in Arabic. 
it's also an attraction for the Jews. They're like, oh my God, you're doing comedy in Arabic. What's happening? What's your story? What's, what's going on? Noam's backstory. It is the kind of made-for-TV biography that you might want in a reality TV version of this hotel. She is a straight-talking, cynical political comedian who grew up learning Arabic as a kid, which is weird in Israel. Most Jewish Israelis who speak Arabic learned it in the army as military intelligence. But she learned it growing up in a hippie village in Israel that was intentionally built to have 50% Jews and 50% Palestinians. Neve Shalom, Salam. In English, it's the Oasis of Peace. I was set to become the poster girl of the, like, give peace a chance movement. You know, my best friends are Palestinian. You know, we're singing songs for peace, football for peace, trees for peace, pancakes for peace. Her parents always told her she was the model of what Israel should look like. But Israel was becoming more and more polarized. The inequalities between Israelis and Palestinians and government policies against Palestinians were becoming more stark. Still, she made peacemaking her job. She started working for the UN organizing dialogue groups, reaching out to Israeli Jews who are the most skeptical of peace, like ultra-right-wing religious groups. But both sides seemed to be moving away from the ideals of compromise she was raised to believe in. I found myself often very alone with a narrative that doesn't really resonate or doesn't apply to a lot of people. And then before she was supposed to give a speech at a peace conference about her work, the UN canceled the program. She lost her job. And at that conference, instead of going up and being the analytical UN peacebuilding Noam, I uh, started telling jokes. (laughs) And it was probably the best thing that I did. Noam was so much more successful making fun of the divides than trying to bridge them. She got gigs all over the U.S. and a fellowship at Harvard to write her one-woman show, Coexistence My Ass, which she says is about coexistence and about her ass. And I don't need to be careful anymore. I can make fun of the Jews, and the next joke would be making fun of Palestinians. I am now not making an order out of the confusion. I'm making a mess out of the confusion. Making jokes in the Middle East, you never know who you're going to offend. And of all the audiences Noam faced as a peace activist or as a comedian, the crowd in the lobby of Hotel Corona seemed like the most diverse. It was just a bunch of old, young, religious, secular, Arab, Jewish, everything, just sitting in the lobby laughing, sometimes not laughing, screaming, um, coughing, (laughs) coughing, definitely coughing. She starts making jokes about this one supermarket cashier who ends up infecting her entire village. And it turns out the cashier is in the audience. And the girl was like, yeah, that's me. I did it. (laughs) She was in the show. So I was like, you're the cashier in the, in the supermarket. You, you made all your village have corona. And everybody was laughing. A lot of this footage was filmed by Aisha, the hospital janitor who came to the hotel with her brother. She'd never been to a live comedy show before and never even been in a room where Arabs and Jews shared a joke before. And laughing on something like common. The next morning, Aisha comes down to breakfast. And when she looks around to decide which group she's going to sit down with today, she realizes that something seems to be different. All the people, like Jewish, Arab, and they starting to sitting together, talking together, eating together, sharing uh, a lot of stuff. If before everyone was sitting in their own group, now they're all mixed. And it's not just Aisha breaking the ice. People are approaching her. And... I asked them about their religion, like about the Jewish people. Like, why when the women get married, she started to cover her hair? And why the guys wearing the kippah? And they explained me a lot. Had you ever asked those questions before? To a Jewish, no. Um, like, most of things, like, it's hard to talk about. And the Jews asked her some of the most sensitive questions that a Palestinian citizen of Israel can face. Like, do you consider yourself Israeli or Palestinian? But the question here felt friendly, genuinely curious. 
they didn't judge me like I'm Arabian, I'm Muslim, I'm that. No, I'm a human that you can talk to me. Like there is no difference between us. I was like, wait, where is the racism? Where's all the problems? Where's all the prejudice? Where everybody's getting along here in this hotel. What's happening here? Noam's even more surprised when their Instagram stories from inside the hotel start being picked up by Israeli TV. The media saw that we love sharing. So it, so every day it was like this reporter is speaking to this person and another reporter is speaking to me. So when we were filming other people, we were like, hey, guys, make some noise for channel number, blah, 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 blah. At one point, Noam posts a picture on Facebook of her arm around a woman in a sweatshirt and a hijab. And she tags it, a Jew and a Palestinian stuck in the Dan Hotel in Jerusalem. As with so much out of Hotel Corona, it goes viral. Thousands of shares, thousands of likes. All the popular pages in Israel posted it. The post was reposted by a big Israeli TV channel, and the comments came from an even wider audience from all over Israel. When a post like this goes mainstream in Israel, you can be sure it'll attract some nasty comments. The usual comments would be like, oh, wait, once you're out, she will send her boy to bomb you. Oh, now you're getting along, but later she will throw a stone at you. And I'm going through the comments and I can't find one negative comment. <laughs> the usual racism, the trolls, the hatred, the separation that I'm used to seeing outside just didn't exist. So sure, the people here could share a joke or even a photo, but how would these new friendships hold up under stress? Well, Aisha remembers this one day she was walking back to her room and this guy in front of her collapses. He's looked like a Vincent van Gogh. He's gaunt, pale, and bearded. He's a young Orthodox Jew, now having an asthma attack on the hallway carpet. And as Aisha rushes over to help, she also stops and wonders, am I allowed to touch him? Like, I'm a Muslim. Maybe I'm... I cannot talk to him. I cannot touch him. Maybe if I help him, he'll be offended. So she calls the medics, but they have to put on all this protective equipment just to enter the hotel. They need her to step in. And I ask the medical what I have to do. Don't let him fall asleep, they tell her. Do you think you saved his life? Actually, maybe, I don't know. But maybe he doesn't want anybody to know that. To know what? Like that he had an attack or that you helped him or? Both of them. At first, she didn't even tell anyone what she'd done. She didn't want to offend them. Then she worried maybe he'd have another attack, so she started telling people. And this older Jewish nurse told her she'd done something really great. She told me you can be a doctor, not a nurse. Aisha confessed to her that she'd always dreamed of being a nurse, not just a hospital janitor. And we started this conversation like, maybe we can help each other. Aisha never had a mentor outside her family, let alone a Jewish mentor. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Okay, back to our episode. Here are Daniel Estrin and Gregory Warner. By early April, Hotel Corona had been open less than a month. And Baruch, from his desk behind the plexiglass, could see that the guests were getting along, but he was worried about Passover. Well, Passover is a holiday of family. He was worried that the guests would feel their isolation even more on this holiday that's all about family. They might get depressed. And we wanted to find a solution to that problem to give them the opportunity to uh, have a proper Seder. But Seder is a lot to figure out. It's family-style eating, not individually wrapped supper trays. How do you keep the food hot during readings and songs that can last well over an hour? And how do you set it all up in advance, before the guests arrive, to contaminate the space? Because once one of them touch anything, it can't go back. And did anyone have any crazy ideas, like like sending waiters with hazmat suits? Uh, nope. 
because there, there were no one <laughs> that were willing to do that. Eventually, the hotel management decided to just open up the banquet hall to all the guests, and they'd serve the food and just do the Seder themselves. But there was another problem. The young guests were dying to film this for their families back home and for TV, but ultra-Orthodox Jews forbid electronics on religious holidays. The ultra-Orthodox in the hotel did not want their holy commemoration of the exodus from Egypt to be Instagram famous. Noam tried to reassure them. We're not going to take our phones out. We're not going to dress in a way that will insult them, you know. But some of the ultra-Orthodox guests made a request to Baruch and the hotel management. It wasn't demand. It was a polite request. We want to celebrate traditionally, and, and the young people want to celebrate differently. And if you don't mind, if it's possible to... To, uh, to divide it. Please divide the banquet hall. One for the ultra-Orthodox and one for the rest. In a video posted just before the Seder started, someone shows the setup. There are the tables on the secular side with all the bottles of soda and the little individual Seder plates. And then there's an actual floor-to-ceiling wall, which makes a complete separate room for the traditional Seder, for the religious people. To Noam, this wall wasn't a practicality, it was a symbol. It reminded me of the world that I'm used to before the corona. It reminded me of our default, that we prefer separation rather than the compromise that comes with uniting. Noam remembers walking into the room on the secular side and seeing the wall. Oh, Noam, you were so cute to think that you found something unique here in this hotel. Let's see how this goes. So the sun is setting, the Seder is about to begin, and I talked to one of the people on the religious side, Amram Maman. He's 66 years old, he's not ultra-Orthodox, but he's Orthodox. He says he remembers coming in with his wife, Gina. She took one look at that partition wall, and she tells him, I can't do Seder like this, I'm going to cry. Amram says he also hated the idea of having a divided Seder. But if he took down the wall, it could spark a fight. The ultra-Orthodox could walk out and protest, and then the young people might pull out their phones and film that. But Amram just couldn't do the Seder this way. He tells his wife, give me two minutes and we're going to move this barrier. It's too big for him to push alone, so he calls over some younger guys, and they start to slide the wall when an ultra-Orthodox man jumps up. But he's not there to stop them. He tells him, I'm so happy you're moving this partition, and he helps him. And altogether, they push that divider back into the corner, And then, as one room, 180 people, they bless the wine. The Seder begins. Aisha and other Muslim guests in the hotel are there too, celebrating with them. They invite me to sit with them, to eat with them. And by the very last night of Passover, Aisha is sitting at the ultra-Orthodox table. And um, it was a great conversation. Like we take a shots. Shots? Yeah. What? Of wine? No, not me, them, but I enjoyed them, like, sitting with them, not to drink, of course. We do have a couple of video clips taken from the end of the Seder. After the prayers, when people just couldn't help it, they discreetly pulled out their phones and filmed the Dayenu. I've seen it on a, on a film, and I was shocked. They had a beautiful Seder. They were celebrating together. They, they were like a, a small community, but like a huge family. Baruch remembers watching this video and being struck by how different this was from Seders outside the hotel walls. The government was forbidding people from hosting any guests. Police set up checkpoints on Passover night to block movement. Baruch like all Israelis, had to do Seder at home. With my small family, my parents sat by themselves, and uh, my mother-in-law sat alone. Can I ask a strange question? Do you ever feel jealous 
that they get to be together and touch each other or be next to each other and you have to keep your distance? Yeah. Yeah. When you see them together and you know that they don't have the all the all the rules and the barriers and that that you, that you have now. I believe that a lot of people in Israel a little bit of envious uh, of that. People won't forget this Passover for for a long time. While Baruch played these videos over and over for his friends, Noam played the experience over and over in her head, trying to make sense of it. I was sitting in my table and watching other people remove barriers, not me. All her life, she'd been told that it was her job to bring people together, a job she felt she'd failed at. You know how amazing it is? I wasn't the one to remove the barriers. Oh my God, I wish things outside could be like this. And she wondered what it was in this hotel that allowed people to find such common ground without slogans, without the UN, without any pancakes for peace. Is it the fact that Jews and Arabs get the same in the hotel? Same food, same terms. Was it that people were being treated equally or that they'd all face down the same disease? That we are realizing how much the well-being of one is the well-being of the other. And how will I think about this experience when I go back to the real world? We called Aisha just as she was heading back to the real world. Her brother had just gotten his second negative test. Like we will go home, sharing with the family. But she's not going back to her old life at her janitor job. This experience has taught her too much. A lot of stuff that I didn't know about myself. Like what? Um, how smart I am. Her new friends convinced her to enroll in nursing school, and they can guide her. While her mom always encouraged her to be curious about people, it wasn't until she got stuck in this hotel that that translated into real friendship and even opportunity. Watching these videos from Hotel Corona, I've been wondering, what if a lot more Israelis went through this experience of being stuck together, you know, in a place where the normal rules of society are suspended? Like, would that change Israel? And actually, a lot more Corona hotels have opened, but most of them are segregated, not mixed like this one. Wow, I didn't know that. Do you think it's a good idea to have these separate hotels? No. I called the army commander in charge of the quarantine hotels, and he told me that there are so many ultra-Orthodox Jews who caught the virus, they made special hotels just for them. He says they wouldn't come to mixed hotels. It's easier to convince people to come if they know they'll be with their own kind. Hotel Corona no longer hosts recovering patients. And when we last talked to Baruch, he was saying goodbye to the last of those guests. When he first opened the doors and started assigning roommates, his fear then was that people from different backgrounds would clash. But they did not. In fact, they became friends. And I believe that if they'll have to spend a, a time in a hotel, Jews and Arabs together... Maybe they will, uh, everything will be okay. Which, uh, but that's the meaning of being uh, Israelis. <laughs> that's not the meaning of being Israelis. It's just how humans are. I once interviewed a reality TV show producer who confessed just how hard it is to get people to fight enough to keep it interesting. He said you have to cast characters and exploit the right moments, stoke the conflict. Because people, he says, as individuals, are frustratingly good at getting along. That is what Baruch discovered. But he is also a hotelier and a practical one. He agrees with the army commander that segregated hotels, they're just easier to get people to come to and easier to manage. Yeah, of course, it's easier. <laughs> Although we, we, we call them guests and we remain calling them guests, but we cannot forget that they are sick. He feels it's unseemly to take whatever magic happened here and try to impose that on the rest of the nation. This is a moment when people are feeling vulnerable and deeply uncertain. And, and we have to do the best we can to uh, make them feel comfortable. Right. So you don't see this as an opportunity to recreate uh, Israeli society? Uh... 
no, because we are not in in a, in a love boat or uh, life is not uh, <laughs> is not a movie. Good luck telling that to the cast of Hotel Corona. And before we go, just one last moment from our interview with Noam. I'm really in a movie that I can't describe. Um, one second. When Noam was talking to us from inside the hotel, this announcement comes on over the PA. Oh my God. Tell Tina what he just said. I wonder what happened. You see, I'm talking to you about this utopia, this great hotel. And while we're recording, (laughs) someone tried to escape. Someone's escaped? <laughs> Daniel Estrin and Gregory Warner. That story was produced by the fabulous Tina Antolini and edited by Lou Olkowski with help from Derek Arthur, Jess Jang, and Autumn Barnes Fraser. John Ellis composed the music with additional scoring from Blue Dot Sessions and mastering by Isaac Rodriguez. A huge thanks to our dear friends at Rough Translation. If you don't already listen to their show, you really should. Look for Rough Translation wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so there's something truly heartwarming about the Corona Hotel we just heard about. Jews and Arabs mingled. Secular people and religious people learned to respect each other. And despite that last-minute jailbreak there, it all felt very kumbaya. But as we started to look into it, we began to hear other stories as well. Stories that were a bit less Eleanor H. Porter's Pollyanna, and a little bit more Jean-Paul Sartre's No Exit. This is an experiment that would never get approved by any ethical committee. Putting all these people in a hotel room, closing them, not letting them go out, making them completely lose control over their lives and see what's happening, you know, how people react. That's Sivan Gorin Arzuni. And she and her family found themselves in a different kind of corona hotel. Not one for people who had already contracted coronavirus but rather for Israelis returning from abroad who were put in quarantine hotels so as to make sure they weren't sick and weren't going to bring the virus into the country. And as you'll hear in our next story, by Dina Kraft, Sivan experienced a darker side of Corona Hotels. Act 2, The Place in Between. In Tibetan Buddhism, there's this idea of the bardo. Bardo is something in between things. So when you sleep, it's this phase between day and day. Or death is a bardo. So I felt like it's this experience between. Sivan is from Kibbutz Galon, not far from Kiryat Gat and Beit Govrin. She's 38 and is the mother of three adorable children, ages 7, 5, and 2. She has a beautiful, shy smile, a great laugh, and lots and lots of freckles. It's easy to imagine her pushing a carriage full of kids down the kibbutz's sleepy paths on her way to milk the cows. But, well, that's not quite her life. You see, Sivan's an acclaimed young scholar from the Hebrew University. She studies ancient Indian poetry, religion, and languages. So I work on early Malayalam, the language of Kerala. It's a state in southwestern India and Sanskrit and on Manipravalam, which is a combination of these two languages. When the pandemic hit, Sivan and her family were far away from the kibbutz, on the other side of the world, actually, in Somerville, Massachusetts. She's currently in the middle of a three-year postdoc at Harvard's prestigious Society of Fellows, working on a book about the rise of local poetry in Kerala in the 14th to 17th centuries. And Sivan is one of those scholars who sort of live the tenets of what they study. She's calm and soft-spoken, reflective and meditative. All that's to say that she was perhaps better equipped than most of us to deal with all the uncertainty and craziness that COVID introduced. Before long, Sivan and her husband settled into a rhythm of homeschooling, playing with the kids in the backyard, 
and still, somehow, managing to carve out time for her research. Things seemed manageable-ish. Till one day in mid-April, she got a phone call from her mom back on the kibbutz. It was a Thursday. Sivan's father, Alnon, hadn't been feeling well lately and had gone in for some tests. Now the results were back. They discovered that it was pancreatic cancer, which is a really bad diagnosis, and things started deteriorating really rapidly. The initial shock of this news quickly gave way to deep sadness. The prognosis was grim, but Sivan had to think practically. If she wanted to see her father again, she'd have to fly to Israel fast. We started realizing that we might really have very little time because the statistics are very bad. But of course, this was all at the height of COVID. Flying, especially with three little kids, wasn't a trivial matter. And what's more, Sivan knew that, as per the Israeli government's guidelines, as soon as they arrived, they'd be carted off to a Corona hotel where they need to quarantine for two full weeks. Still, that all seemed like a small price to pay. Maybe it was all a blessing in disguise. In fact, aboard the more or less empty flight over to Israel, Sivan went back and forth between extreme anxiety about her sick father and more relaxing thoughts about the all-expenses-paid government-mandated hotel vacation. Sort of imagined us in the room with a Dead Sea view. And I was like, okay, it's going to be fun. I mean, not fun, but we're going to have the view. But nothing, she soon discovered, went according to plan. It began with her homecoming, which was, let's just say, a bit different. When Sivan and her family usually land at Ben-Gurion, a large group of cheery relatives are waiting in the reception hall with balloons and homemade welcome signs. But this time, they were greeted by a bunch of home front command reserve soldiers. There were no hugs or kisses. Instead, they were asked to fill out endless forms and handed some bottled water and prepackaged sandwiches. It was cheese and coleslaw. My kids didn't like them. So, yeah. They were then told to board a crowded bus. They were sort of very dusty. And you're like, this bus wasn't sanitized. And whisked away. At that point, you already lose control over your destiny. Sitting on the bus, Sivan still fantasized about a relaxing vacation. God knows she needed it. The kids could splash around in a pool, she'd take in some rays. At first, she'd hoped for a seaside breeze, but as the bus started making its way inland, she began imagining stunning desert sunrises instead. That's when the bus pulled up to a nondescript, concrete building at the entrance to Jerusalem. But Sivan, an eternal optimist, was still hopeful. The one thing I was like, hoping to see are balconies. There must be balconies. It's a hotel. But as she looked up and down the building, she couldn't spot a single balcony. Perhaps they're all on the other side, she thought to herself. Her kids were increasingly cranky from the long trip. And all she and her husband wanted to do was get to their room. A young soldier told them to wait in the hotel's narrow lobby. There, they received a military-style debrief, which outlined their lives for the next two weeks. We're going to get boxed food three times a day, and twice a day we have 30 minutes where we can go to get some air in the patio. Sivan and her husband exchanged worried looks. Their imposed vacation was starting to sound more and more like a prison sentence. They were assigned to two adjacent rooms on the sixth floor and got into the elevator. I was still trying to avoid touching elevator buttons at that phase. The rooms had a connecting door, but sadly, no balcony. In lieu of that, there was a window looking out on a busy highway that was under construction. So you have all these, like, trucks and, I don't know, cranes, and it's a very loud highway. The window, alas, had no bars or grate. So I'm like, okay, we can't keep this window open because our little monkey is going to jump out from the sixth floor. 
It suddenly dawned on Sivan that this would be her life for the next 14 days. Three hyperactive, jet-lagged kids stuck in two small rooms with closed windows. When I saw the room, I felt like it was a mistake, like it's going to be a nightmare, like I did something bad to my kids. I just, I just didn't know how we're going to do it. Perhaps leaving Massachusetts with what now seemed like their dreamlike backyard was a rash decision. But it was too late. Amid screams and kids jumping up and down on the beds with their shoes on, Sivan and her husband began unpacking. I think maybe 10 minutes after getting into the room, we started hearing these screams and we opened the window. And in the beginning, I was like looking for someone on, on the street, like a dead body, because I thought that someone jumped. Sivan might have just been projecting her own inner state, as there were luckily no bodies laying on the ground. But she could clearly hear what sounded like a couple yelling from one of the floors down below. She started screaming that um, she's going to jump if they don't like let her out. And the man was shouting, Homefront command, you've abandoned us. Trust me. It's a bit catchier in Hebrew. It was like a pun. They closed the window, wondering whether the next two weeks would be like living in an insane asylum. But even if that was the case, Sivan was comforted by the idea that a Corona hotel, especially one staffed by seemingly serious masked soldiers enforcing strict rules, would be a safe place to quarantine. After all, they had returned to see her dad, And given his state, they had to be extremely careful not to contract the virus. If indeed everyone stayed in their rooms, other than the staggered yard time, they'd be safe. They'd shut out all the yelling from the other rooms and, as maddening as it might be, they'd create a little six-floor nest for themselves. Then there was a knock at the door. And these two people come. Two other hotel guests. And they're smoking in the the hall, which even in Israel is not (laughs) okay. And they're like, are you okay? And we were like, not really. It turns out they too had heard the screaming and mistakenly thought it was coming from Sivan's room. They were just trying to be good neighbors. But all Sivan could think about was that not only were they smoking inside, but they were out and about, clearly violating the guideline to stay in their room. She asked, Are you like going freely here? Their answer? Yeah, we, you know. She thanked them, closed the door, and started hyperventilating. This is just insane. And we're here with the kids. And this place is so bad. It's a horrible place. I just didn't know how we're going to do it. I felt depressed and sort of panicked. As if all that wasn't enough, the entire building soon reeked of pot, which seemed to be coming from the floor below. Floor five was the floor of the, like, the young people. Said young people had opened a WhatsApp group so they could invite everyone to the party. Come to floor five and they send these videos of like the alcohol, the drugs. There was one guy who had a birthday, so they ordered a cake and, you know, punched it on his face. Yeah, not quite what the home front command soldiers and hotel staff had outlined in their debrief. But it just got worse. Looking out their now firmly shut window, Sivan could spot people sneaking out the back of the hotel to buy a shawarma at a nearby kiosk. And so it made the whole thing feel even more stupid because people are coming in and out. We didn't, of course. Most of the other guests, it became clear, had little regard for the rules. Many of them were lounging around the common patio, i.e. the outdoor yard they were supposed to visit twice a day in small groups and for 30 minutes at a time. And no one seemed to be bothered by these blatant infringements either. In fact, the hotel staff had even set up a little table with instant coffee and sugar in the corner. There was also soy milk, which I found nice of them to arrange. And yet, I don't know, 200 people were touching that milk uh, box. And my son, I caught him like licking the little lid of the milk box. (laughs) One day, I'm like, okay. As that first day came to a close, they lay down on the bed defeated. It all felt somewhat pointless. 
they had traveled halfway around the world just to find themselves locked up in a hotel, which felt more like a cross between a prison, a mental asylum, and a youth hostel in Ibiza. When they first entered the hotel, Sivan was extremely serious about social distancing. But it didn't take long before the laid-back atmosphere at the Corona Hotel took its toll. I just dropped it. I just stopped. Gone were the masks. Gone was the hand sanitizer. Gone were the repeated warnings to our kids not to touch the elevator buttons. We completely stopped paying attention to the corona because we felt like you can't socially distance and be strict about anything when you're trying to, like, survive this place. Given the general disregard for any semblance of safety protocols, it seemed like their chances of contracting the virus in the very facility that was designed to make sure they didn't have it were pretty high. They felt as if they were stuck in a Kafka novel. The fifth floor partiers continued to send WhatsApp invitations and circulate videos. But as Sivan watched yet another video, this one of a guest dousing himself with milk, a call interrupted the fun and games. It was her mom. And she's like, you know, he can't walk anymore. He can't eat. And it's very bad. And I don't know if you, you're going to make it, you know. On top of everything else, it now seemed entirely possible that it would all turn out to be for naught that she wouldn't make it to see her dad, which, of course, was the entire reason for bringing the family to Israel to begin with. Sivan had reached her breaking point. And what does a gentle, collected, and soft-spoken expert of ancient Indian poetry do then? She summoned all her courage and went to talk to the man who, in every possible way, controlled her destiny, the 20-something home front command officer in charge of the hotel. And I, I started crying to this random person that I don't know. And I told him, if this is the end, it's not right that you're keeping me here. Sivan, I should say, isn't a crier. Definitely not someone who breaks down in front of strangers. But she was desperate. I didn't have to fake it, but I would fake it if I needed to, because that was the only way of, you know, if you don't cry and scream, no one's going to do anything about you because you're just behaving well. Well-behaved women, the famous quote goes, seldom make history. They also don't usually get a free pass to leave their Corona hotel. If there was ever a moment to channel her inner pushy Israeli, now was the time. Do you think that's kind of an Israeli thing, the crying and the screaming, and then they'll, they'll pay attention to you? Yeah. And I guess she's right, because, well, it worked. The young soldier took pity on Sivan and decided, just like that, to grant her a 24-hour-long pass to go visit her dad. Sivan didn't ask any questions and quickly set out for the kibbutz. On the drive down south, her mind was spinning. She was worried, guilt-ridden, and excited, all at once. She was finally on her way to do what she had come for, to see her father. But she was also afraid, afraid of infecting him or the rest of the family, or just other folks in the kibbutz. There were no, no positive cases in this kibbutz, and there are many old people around. After all, with all the hedonistic negligence at the hotel, she had no idea whether or not she had contracted the virus. But none of this mattered now. She was on a mission, and nothing, not law-breaking corona hotel guests, not home front command regulations, and not even disapproving elderly kibbutznikim would stop her. She walked into her father's room. With the gloves, with the mask, I was very nervous. I locked the, the door so that no one else can come in. She was careful to stay six feet away from his bedside. He told her not to worry. She'd be doing him a favor by giving him corona, he joked. Sivan smiled, and her father smiled back. She had made it on time. Sivan and her family went through many ordeals till they were finally allowed to return to the kibbutz for good. And when they did, Sivan's dad was waiting for them. He was very weak, and couldn't really play with his grandkids all that much. But they spent a lot of time together, laughing and sharing stories. And then, 
On July 1st at 10.20 p.m., Sivan's dad, Arnon Gorin, passed away. This story was produced and reported by Dina Kraft. Dina writes for the Christian Science Monitor in Haaretz and is the host of Hadassah's wonderful podcast, The Branch. The Branch tells stories of everyday relationships between Israelis and Palestinians, Jews and Arabs, and I highly, highly recommend it. You can find it at hadassah.org slash thebranch or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thank you for calling the hotel. To make a room reservation, please press 1. Hi, Ariel. I was wondering if there are rooms available for tonight? No, unfortunately, the hotel is full for today. We're almost full to the end of the month. Sorry. We do have a few rooms that are still left. The hotel is quite full. No, sorry. Just for next week. Let me see what I have left. Almost completely full. We have three rooms available. Total 44 in a hotel. Can I just ask, when did the hotel start being booked up? This week, actually. Last couple of days, we've been uh, filling up rapidly. Tomorrow and Friday, we're completely full. It's uh, because the Israelis can't leave. <laughs> They're taking vacation in Tel Aviv. Well, look, that's terrific. Thanks so much for your time. You're very welcome, sir. Bye-bye. Yeah. Foreign tourists still haven't really returned to Israel. But as you just heard... Many of the hotels are back in business. The Israel chain, for example, took the decision of opening in June after they saw the, the enormous uh, requests, the amount of requests from the, the local uh, domestic tourism, uh, saying that they're looking for hotels, they're looking to get out of their homes, and they want to escape. And uh, even you know, with, the, uh, with the risks involved of being around other people. Jason Gardner, the sales and marketing manager for East Hotel, we heard at the start of the episode. I can tell you, our, our hotels are absolutely flourishing. Uh, July and August were wonderful months. Uh, we very, very sorely miss our international tourists throughout all our hotels. Uh, very sorely miss them. Um, if, if anybody's listening to whoever is listening, we, I could tell you uh, directly, we sorely miss you. Uh, but uh, it, the hotels have been full. And that's our episode. Thanks to Henriette Shakar, Hussein Chakra, Daniela Cheslo, Asad Jubran, Elizabeth Senya Spackman, Robert Krulwich, Karen Duffin, Sarah Gonzalez, Sana Krasikov, Mira Burtwintonic, and NPR's Middle East editor, Larry Kaplow. Thanks also to Brigadier General Yoram Lerdo, Atar Nussbaum, Dana Harmon, Charlotte Halle, Kurt Hoffman, Wayne Hoffman, Sheila Lambert, Erica Frederick, Jeff Fagan, Joy Levitt. You can hear all our episodes, including the previous parts of our COVID-19 miniseries Alone Together, on our site, israelstory.org, or by searching for Israel Story wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all under Israel Story. And while you're at it, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter so that you're always up to date on everything Israel Story. All you have to do is go to israelstory.org slash newsletter. And finally, please go to Apple Podcasts, rate us, and write a review. As you've heard me say before, it really makes a difference and helps us get to new listeners. Joel Shupak scored this episode with music from Blue Dot Sessions and sound design help from Yochai Meital. Sela Weisblum mixed it all up. Israel Story is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Our staff is Yochai Meital, Zev Levi, Joel Shupak, Yoshi Field, Skyler Inman, Sharon Rapaport, and Rotem Tzin. Abby Adler, Marie Ruder, and Carly Rubin are wonderful production interns. Jeff Umbro from The Podglomerate is our marketing director. I'm Ishi Harman, and we'll be back very soon with part six of Alone Together. My death is within spitting distance. I've already accepted that. Any minute now, I'll be gone. But what's with the tears? So, till then, stay safe, shalom shalom, and yalla bye. 
מטירה, מבני ברק, מלב המדבר ירושלים או סתם איזה כפר פותחים את הפה כי זה מה שנשאר כולם רצים אחרי השטרות איך נשארתי בלי דירות קרות אם גם אתם מחפשים את התשובות במחצית, מה זה גלי הכוסית? איפה המצית? מדבר פרסית, שומע לא עזית, צנחתי כמו עזית, למה עוד פעם להסית? לפני התחזית. מקריית אונו ועד נתיבות, מפרדס חנה ועד מעלות, עכשיו כולם מתבקשים לענות. תרימו מקחות מיקרופון מצלמה, תרימו למעלה לכל מי שבא, יגידו תורידו תרימו תרימו! מצווה להיות שמח, נגמר להתווכח, חוזה כמו דיני קרח, המצב פה מסובך, אני פה רק קורא, מה אני בורא, למדתי את הלקח, אור חדש נשפך. וואלה איזה אח, יצאת פה מלאך, היום אני תומך, מחר אני נתמך, ריגנתי לי ולך, משהו משובח, הכיכר בלילה נביא את המהפך. תירוצים רוטו ראש ממשלה, אותן חשדות לדבר עבירה, אולי כבר תאמר מה בדבר עבירה, אולי כבר תחזיר אותה בחזרה mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping Kroger where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over $600 each week you can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time Kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply you 